Costello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, intellectual property, public sentiment, and the Washington Redskins. So, Richard, we are taking up an issue today that we've talked about in the past, the controversy over the name of the Washington Redskins football franchise amidst all these increasing complaints that the name's racially insensitive. But, of course, the reason that we're back to this is it's back in the news. We've had the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office recently canceling several of the Redskins' trademark protections on the grounds that the name of the franchise is disparaging of Native Americans. So let's start me with the legal side here, Richard. Is the Patent Office within its rights to make a decision like that or is this an example of government overreach? I think they're wrong as a matter of law and I have to add at least a couple of words to what you said. Uh, the test of disparagement is not done as of 2014. It's done as of the time at which the uh, trademark was in fact registered with the PTO. That's the Patent and Trade Office. And these patents, rather these trademarks were registered not at the same time but between 1967 on the one hand and 1990 on the other hand. And I think it's pretty clear uh, that even within that 23-year period, there's been some evolution in sentiment upon the use of the word. And it's even more clear as far as I'm concerned that the rate of that evolution has probably taken place more rapidly in the 24 years after it, um, as I think we have entered into a situation in which names and sort of identity politics is a very important feature of, of common life. Uh, so you have to go back and start to figure out the way in which the world looked at that particular time. So that's the first question, getting the time right. The second question on the legal side that I'll just mention is that this issue actually came up somewhat in somewhat the same fashion some years ago in a case called Harjo, um, which was decided in 2003 by a judge named Colleen Kola Cotelli. And, you know, she talked about a lot of issues in that particular case because it's a very complicated case. But she did make one particular finding. Um, which she said that the evidence presented was not sufficient to show uh, that there had been disparagement at the time that these particular um, trademarks were first registered. And I would have thought that even if there are other rationales, that one would have concluded the case. Uh, the a level of dancing around this particular opinion in, by the majority in the PTO, I think, is a sign of just how result-oriented it turned out that they were, you could have written a two-sentence opinion saying we've already gone over this stuff. There's no evidence since 2003 to the present which tells us the differences in sentiments between 1967 and 1990. We know in effect that the evidentiary findings in this case were lifted en masse from the earlier record. Uh, so, Ganook, one bite at the apple is enough and you don't want every individual member of one or another of these tribes to be able to come forward and say, well, the other guy may have lost, but I'm in a position to try it again. Because that gets you into this very unpleasant case where you can lose 900 times and then on the 901st you win and the other cases don't matter. To the extent that you're trying to cancel a play, a, a, a a trademark, you want to sort of have it one up and one down. So you actually want to force it into the mode of a class action so that everybody who is adverse to the Washington Redskins is in fact going to be bound by the decision. Otherwise, you get the worst kind of judicial um, opportunism. And on those kinds of grounds alone, the opinion turns out to be wrong even before we get to these issues having to do with the relationship between disparagement on the one hand and offense on the other. 
Well, that's what I was going to ask you. I mean, if disparagement is a legitimate criterion, even if it wasn't applied as such here, that obviously when, when we use that phrase conversationally outside of the legal context, deeply subjective. So what are the standards by which it's used in this context? I mean, are, are there clearer definitions of what it's supposed to mean in cases like this? Well, there are certainly a bunch of cases that have come up over the time um, which have been designed to do this. So here are the two that were cited, and I went back and I actually read them. The first one is that what you do is you, you have some treatment for venereal disease and you call it some kind of doughboy ointment, and you're not trying to, as it were, praise the doughboys, what you're doing is you're suggesting that all of the World War I veterans who went under that name were guilty of salacious sexual behavior and it was disparagement to them as of a group and, you know, they struck it down. Uh, the other case was that somebody created a wine called Koran, spelled it K-H-O-R-E-N. The wine, in fact, is, um, shall we say, thought to be improper for use by Muslims. Koran with an H is pronounced the same way as without an H. And so what you're basically saying is you've got here a situation in which there is an implicit endorsement by Muslims of the fact that this wine is going to take place. Uh, there was, and I've talked about this some time ago, the first of the famous privacy case is they had a woman um, who basically was put on a picture and it said the foul flower of the family, F-L-O-U-R. And uh, this was held to be an invasion of privacy because the woman, in fact, was a member of religious groups which did not believe in advertisement. Today, that case comes out rather a different way. It says, hey, you know, look at this woman. Um, she's giving her services for nothing. She's entitled to charge for the endorsement. But in the original version, it was treated as a form of soft defamation. Um, and once you start talking about these things as soft defamation, it seems to me that disparagement becomes an appropriate question. The harder issue is the second one, having to do with whether it's a test of intention or a test of effect. And, and walk us through that distinction because I'm sure a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with that and it, and it is sort of the most contentious part of this. Well, it's a very complicated question. If you go back to the law of defamation, which deals with putting people into hatred, ridicule, and contempt, the general test that has been applied in most cases is the following. It doesn't matter what you meant. It mattered who you hit under these cases. So if you say something about a person, he sells wonderful pork chops, and it turns out that he's a Jewish butcher. And so now you're accusing him of something that's quite wrong. Uh, the older rule was that a strict liability, even if you did not know the background facts, the so-called innuendo that made this thing wrong. Uh, the question is, does that carry over into this statute? And I think the answer to that question is no. There you are trying to figure out whether or not one guy is entitled to get damages from another guy. But in this particular case, what you're doing is you're asking whether or not you will cancel a particular protected right. And generally speaking, there's a very strong set of presumptions against cancellation. So if you look back at all of these particular cases, the usual view on the subject is you have to say something which is really terrible and to mean it. And in the cases that I talked about with the Doughboys and the Koran wine, that particular element was satisfied. Uh, so I think, in effect, in this particular statute, uh, disparagement clearly carries its intentionality, meaning associated with it. Uh, contempt and disrepute, again, these are not things for the most part which are judged by effects. They're usually judged by mental state. And there was no case that was cited where, in effect, you could say it was simple inadvertence that led to the disparagement. It was always built into the design of the particular brand that was being put forward. So with the question 
of the Redskins. Let's strip the law and the politics out of this for a moment as a social matter. If you're in the position of Daniel Snyder, the owner of the team, who's of course been steadfastly refusing to change the name, but you didn't name the team, but you own it. It's your brand. How, if you're in Snyder's position, how would you, Richard, handle these calls to change the name? The public. Well, I mean, it's very difficult because it then ties into the last of the legal questions. That is offense, which is what is talked about here. In some cases, if a term like the N-word is universally regarded as insulting, uh, you're not going to let somebody say, gee, I didn't mean it to hurt anybody's opinion. Um, But what's going on in this case, and which Snyder's really upset about, is in fact, he means this is a positive brand and a positive association. He's trying to sell Redskin paraphernalia. He's trying to win people over to his brand. He is not trying to insult the very product that he's pushing. And now other people come along, a minority of people, in fact, who say, we find this offensive. And his basic position is, you cannot make this into something which is disparaging by essentially yelling and screaming that, you know, we're just deeply offended by this. So he's getting his back up against them. Um, What's happened, of course, is that the campaign has actually had a fair bit of success. Um, There are many people who come along and they sort of say, look, I don't find the term particularly attractive or particularly offensive. As far as I'm concerned, it's never used to describe ordinary people or American Indians or Native Americans. Um, It's the Redskins. Um, Who else is it? It's the Skins. Um, the abbreviation. We know who it is. And so therefore, we should just let this thing ride. But then they will turn around and they say, but if there are a group of individuals out there who regard this as essentially offensive, then we're going to side with them because we want to preserve the kind of racial harmony amongst various individuals. So what's going to happen in my view is that Snyder has to worry about the effect on the sort of the uncommitted independent neutrals. If these people come up together and they say, you know, the Redskins is a name which offends large numbers of tribal members. They've told you this for 30 years and you want to keep doing it. Look, what's it to you to change this thing? Find some other name. Call them the Ovaltines, whatever it is, or the Heat, or the Banana. You'll find some nice name that will carry it, or the Flying Fish. Or that's a baseball team. You know, find an animal. Find a compound. Do something. And if enough people start to believe that, his brand is, in fact, going to be tarnished, and he will not be able to do it. There was a nice piece in the New York Times today in which a bunch of guys said, look, the reporters are now saying that we're not going to use the term Redskins when we describe the team. And there's some econometric models out there which say maybe it turns out that you lose some of your fan support if you lose use a name that people are kind of mixed emotions about. The answer to that, of course, is really very complicated because then somebody says, you know, for every person who gets angry at the use of the Redskins name, there are two people who get furious that those people are angry at the fact that they're now treating me as a racist because I love my Redskins, I love their rituals, I love their paraphernalia, I love everything about them. So it may well be that this whole decision will just polarize the population. And if our friend Snyder decides that, you know, so long as 75% of the population is with him, he doesn't care about the fact that 25% are against him. And let me mention just one other thing about this. It's clear that many a 
team name has been abandoned. Um, I think of Stanford, which is now a, a singular cardinal instead of the Stanford Indians or whatever it was. But a college campus has a completely different demography uh, and population statics than a pro team, which appeals to very different kinds of constituents, which is why the pro teams have never yielded to this in the past because they know their fan base and they know it's not a bunch of Stanford alumni. So I don't know what he should do in effect. My own view is if it were me, I would probably call it a day. And the reason is it's the only way to get this dispute behind you. Otherwise, it's just going to be on the table time and time and time again. And instead of being able to get forward a message about your team, you're going to see that you're going to have trouble. Some sponsors are going to start to say, look, if they're so upset about this, we're so upset about this, we're going to start to pull our ads from your particular kinds of situation. Cheerleaders will decide we don't want to dance for the Redskins anymore. Um, You don't want to put yourself into the position where your brand is in perpetual turmoil. Now, I happen to sympathize with him because I think that some of this is rather overwrought. But, you know, who says that I'm the median voter on this issue or the median consumer? What happens is if you talk to disparagement, you're talking about what one guy means, and that you could find as a fact. When you're talking about offense, you're trying to sum sentiments over an entire population, which ranges from very strongly pro to very strongly negative. And in the end, I think that Snyder will probably win on appeal if he takes it on appeal. Um, But it may well be that it's time for him, as it were, to bury the hatchet on this one and try to start over again with some different kind of identity. I'm no expert on branding, but certainly this would be something that I would be very concerned about if I were one of his shareholders. And I think I'd be very concerned about it, therefore, if I were him. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org, and you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.